Good morning, church. Really delighted to see so many of us gathered here to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Really delighted to have Pastor Ian join us as well. Warm welcome to him and his family. And yeah, let's clap. Let's welcome him one more time. And we're really delighted to be able to embark on a new sermon series on 1 Corinthians this weekend. You know, in our directions this year on discipleship in the family, we hope to better understand how we can be an authentic church family. And 1 Corinthians brings us face to face with some of the real issues that the church faces, our families face. And so I pray that our hearts will be postured right, that we will allow God's word and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform us and renew us so that we may be a church family that loves and serves God. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we surrender this sermon series to you. Purify our hearts, renew our minds, and glorify yourself through the preaching and the study of your word. And now grant us the grace to listen and the heart to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. At the time of writing of this letter, because of its very strategic location, Corinth was a commercial hub. It was cosmopolitan, it was prosperous, but it was also morally corrupt and religiously diverse. On a second missionary journey, Paul started the church there. He came to Corinth in March 50 AD and stayed till September 51 AD, one and a half years. And Acts 18 tells us that many in Corinth believed and were baptized. Paul later left for Ephesus, and while he was in Ephesus, he had information about some issues that had arisen in the church in Corinth. He then wrote what we would call 1 Corinthians today to address these issues. And in this letter, he covered issues like division in the church, church discipline, sexual immorality, idolatry, marriage and singleness, order in worship, spiritual gifts, and the resurrection. And if you wish to have an overview of the book, you can refer to the video recording of our midweek teaching session, which just took place a few days ago. Many, many thanks to our communications team who put together this video. So go and have a listen in order to have an overview of the themes and issues of the book. But today we cover chapter one. And chapter one is indeed a surprising start. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He gets to the core of the issue. He prescribes the most fundamental solution. And today's message is structured as one, two, three. One sincere appeal, two fundamental issues, and three discipleship lessons. Let's begin with number one. One sincere appeal. The first issue that Apostle Paul dealt with at the start of the letter was on the issue of unity. The church was divided. Verse 11 tells us that there were quarrels among them. And the Greek word for quarrel can extend to fighting and strife. And so Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And so the first issue is this sincere appeal for unity. Paul then goes on to two fundamental issues that are in contrast with one another. He says, there is division among you because of the wisdom of men. Human wisdom tells us who we should follow. Human wisdom lays down the criteria for us to follow. Oh, how smart the leader is, 
how presentable, how eloquent, how gifted, how spiritual, how qualified they are, and perhaps how, how much charisma they have. Human wisdom tells us you have to follow your preferences, your convictions. Human wisdom tells us that you have to bear allegiance to your ideologies, your principles, your philosophies. And the church in Corinth fell into this cultural disposition because some of them would follow Paul, others Apollos, Cephas, and some say, I follow Christ. And in fact, there are four groups and they represent typically four types of people that we see in church today. First, the Paul party. Now, the Paul party are those who are very loyal to founders and founding traditions. They would refer to the founding fathers. They would submit to the authority figures of the church. And guess what? There is a group like that in every church. They will tell you, don't change that. Don't, don't, you can't do this. Because this has been done for the past 40, 50 years. You can imagine, there, there are groups like that amongst us. Then we have what we know as the Apollos party. Now, the Apollos party follow Apollos because Apollos, as we can understand from Acts 18 and 19, Apollos had displayed great intellectual ability. He was an eloquent speaker. He was very charismatic, very gifted. No wonder he attracted a personal following. And today in our churches, even in Wesley, we have those who would follow the intellectual, the charismatic, the eloquent types. We can see that among us. And then we have the Cephas party. Cephas actually refers to the name of Peter. Now, it's generally agreed that the Cephas group represented Jewish Christianity. Scholars tell us that Peter might have visited Corinth himself, and that would explain the emergence of such a clique or party. And among the Corinthian Christians, there were some Jews who were converted. There was always the temptation to return to Judaism, because legalism provides a clear structure to their faith. Legalism tells you, obey this, obey that, don't do this, don't do that. It's all so clear. And today there are teachers, pastors, and leaders who emphasize strict behavior, strict duties, strict structures of leadership. And there is a group in church who loves that. They sincerely appreciate systems, structures, defined programs. Tell me step A to Z, you know. Tell me how to get there, every step must be clearly enunciated. They need the very definite do's and don'ts to guide them. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's who you are. And finally, there is the Christ party. Now you may say, hey, Pastor Ray, isn't, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be the best party? They follow Jesus Christ. Not necessary. While the other three groups follow a personality, this group will refuse to follow anybody. They will be adverse to authority. They are the anti-establishment types. And some Bible commentators call this group the super spiritual elite. Everything is hallelujah, praise the Lord. Everything is of a spiritual significance. You laugh, but there are those among us who are like that in church. Now, the problem is not to put us all into different groups. The issue for the church in Corinth is that despite the differences they have, they were fighting with one another. The issue is not the factions. The issue is the rivalry, the quarreling, and the strife. It's one thing to be different, and we are all different. It's another to allow the differences to escalate into disunity. And Paul tells the four groups, hey guys, you need to work together. And that's how he moves on to the second issue, 
which is a contrast. Because disunity happens because of the wisdom of man. But unity only happens because of the foolishness of God. Foolishness of God? Yes. God was foolish in His method. During Paul's time, the world had different techniques to make its message more acceptable. During Paul's time, it was philosophy, it was legal reasoning, it was wisdom. Our generation today, also, we have our own techniques to make a message more acceptable. We have TED Talks, we have TikTok, we have Instagram and all other, other kinds of grams. We have other social media platforms to get a message across, right? But my friends, the method of God has nothing of this. The gospel needs nothing of this. The gospel needs no tricks, no stunts, and no special effects. The gospel is simply proclaiming what God has done in Jesus Christ. A simple message. Then we trust that this message will transform lives and hearts. Amen? No wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he declares, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and this is the point, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Today, my friends, you need to recognize that the power to save does not come from polished presentations or eloquent sermons. The power to save is simply proclaiming the gospel. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and is coming again. What is foolish in the eyes of the world? And it will be foolish for you to bring a message like that to the world. The world will laugh at you. Who is this Jesus dying on the cross? But my friends, what is foolish by the world is wise in God's eyes. Because he then moves on to a very foolish message. Not just the method, the message itself is foolish. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. For a Jew, the sign that Christ is the Messiah can never be the cross. Deuteronomy 21-23 tells them that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree or on a cross. So how can the Messiah be crucified? To a Jew, this is a stumbling block. And the Greek word for stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, where you get the word scandal from. And so stumbling block actually it means something scandalous, something that will put your faith down. The, the Greeks, on the other hand, they prize wisdom above all else. The Greeks in those days would be like what we today would pursue signs and reason. So for the Greeks, Christ crucified, the Almighty God hung as a worst criminal, is a contradiction of reason and wisdom. No way. And yet, my friends, the message of the cross is the power of God to save. It is the wisdom of God displayed. It is ridiculous, but yet the most ridiculous thing God has done has turned out to be smarter than anything human beings can come up with. And God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the message, to save those who will believe in Him. And finally, the Apostle Paul went on to talk about the foolishness of the members of the church in Corinth. He tells the church, God must have been out of His mind to save you guys, to choose you guys to be part of the church. 
Come on, guys, look at yourselves. Who were you when you were saved? Did you really think you deserve it? Not many of you were wise. You were foolish in your sin. You were weak. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. And which means there was nothing in you deserving by the standards of the world. But yet God saved each one of you. And this is the display of His wisdom. Let's read the few verses together. Together now. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. My friends, today, if you are going to boast, you boast in the Lord. You boast in Jesus Christ, our wisdom, our redemption, our righteousness. Andrew Wilson, the commentator, puts it right. And he paraphrases what Paul was saying to the church. You were a foolish people who heard a foolish message, preached in a foolish way. And God has demonstrated his wisdom so powerfully that the smartest people on earth are left scratching their heads and wondering how he did it. Amen. Amen. It is through the foolishness of God. Really, really, my friends, the very unimpressive method of the gospel, the scandalous message, and the undeserving members, the salvation has come to us. Let this humble us to unity. Unity is not forged by the wisdom of men. Unity is not forged through political acumen. Unity is not forged through human strategy. Unity is only possible because of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the point I really want to leave with you and invite you to come to a fresh place of humility. Some of you face strife in your families. Your family may be Christian, but you're fighting with each other. Some of you face strife in your small groups and ministries. And today, let the foolishness of God drive us to our knees. To God, we truly, truly need you. The three discipleship lessons. The first is we have to pursue unity in Christ. And the word, key word here is in Christ. Unity is only possible when you focus on what Jesus has done, when you focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the church in Corinth in verse 10, be perfectly united in mind and thought. He's not calling the church to be perfectly united in strategy or in goals. He's calling us to be perfectly united in our minds, which means that we need to let the gospel of Jesus Christ transform our minds to true unity. And it's when we humble ourselves under the lordship of what Christ has done for us through his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he's coming again, then, then will we experience that blessing of true unity. I want you to know that unity is not unanimity. It's not that we always have to agree. Unity is not even uniformity, that we are all the same, because we are not the same. But unity, Christian unity, is the willingness to move together for the glory of God out of reverence for Christ. You ask me, that's what Christian unity? You know, in John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples may be one 
as his Father and he are one. And how true that is. The potential for us to witness to the world is when our unity is visible. When the world will know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. Unity, such an expression of powerful, authentic love. Look at what's been happening the past two, three weeks. What has been rocking Singapore in a political front? Will we be united as the people of God in prayer? Will we be united in the people of God in the way we show kindness and compassion? And so, my friends, out of reverence for Christ, here are some practical ways for unity. Number one, pray. Pray for the other person that you disagree with. Now, don't pray to God to change the other person's point of view. Because most of the time we do that. God, please change him or please change her. Because, my friends, prayer changes you first. Prayer changes you first and foremost. Pray as you surrender your differences to God. Number two, be kind. You may disagree, but you can disagree in a kind manner. You don't have to gossip, bad mouth. You don't have to say things that will hurt. You can disagree, but disagree in an honorable manner. Thirdly, do not judge, but seek to understand who are you to judge. Come before the Lord and say, Lord, help me find a place of empathy as I seek to understand and listen to why the other person is holding a different view from me. Fourthly, appreciate how our differences can complement. Remember the four groups I talked about? One who follow Apollos, Paul, Zephyrus, and Christ. Do you know that they bring a different dimension of spirituality to the table for us as a church? We need those who are strong in traditions to remind us of the value of traditions. We need those who are more spirit-led to allow us to move in the arena. We need those who are more detailed and systematic to help us plan great programs. We need those who are really just loving the Lord to guide us along the journey of working together. And so we need to appreciate how our differences can actually help us to be a better church. And finally, my friends, focus on what unites than what divides. Amen? Because there may be much more that unite us than divide us. And sometimes on one issue that divides us, we go separate ways. But you know there's so much more that can, that can flourish when we come together and recognize it's much more that unites us. It's the first discipleship lesson. Pursue unity in Christ. The second is to posture in humility before Christ. Come to the foot of the cross, my friends. You know, when I was asking myself, what is one key takeaway for the church, for this sermon? This is the message. Posture and humility before Christ. Because the cross is the most extraordinary inversion in history. No human wisdom could have predicted that the Son of God, by dying a brutal death as a worst criminal, and then by rising again, he would honor the weakest and the most shameful of all people. No one could have thought about that. By the cross, God has overthrown one of the four standards in this world. The idea that only the wise, the well-bred, the articulate, the gifted, and the powerful, they matter to God. That's false. By the cross, God has shown that his heart is instead for the weak, the poor, the contrite and humble, the least and the last. In fact, my friends, God uses the weak who are willing to turn to him to humble the strong who refuse to. 
He uses the poor who recognize their need for him to humble the rich who think they don't need God. People who glory in their own intelligence and insight will be put to shame because those by worldly standards regarded not very smart, they are smart enough to embrace the foolishness of God in the message of the cross. Today, how smart are you? How wise are you? But the more important question is will you humble yourself and let your pride be punctured by the amazing love shown on the cross? That is the gospel. It levels us wherever we may come from. It's a leveling plane. We come before the foot of the cross and we are the same, broken in need of salvation. Let that bring true unity and true humility. The final discipleship lesson is to persevere. Is to persevere. Because remember, the foolishness of God is greater than the best wisdom of men. Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And that's why we can persevere. We can persevere in trusting Jesus Christ. Now, this discipleship lesson is gleaned from the very greeting that Paul gave at the start of the letter. Because, my friends, the church in Corinth was a mess, full of problems, full of division. But Paul saw the church not through the lenses of human weakness. Paul saw the church through the lenses of God's faithfulness. That's why he says that the church will be completely sustained by the faithfulness of God. Before he dealt with the issue of disunity, he declared God's faithfulness. He says in verse 8, God will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is why Paul can be positive. Now, he's a realist. He knew that the church in Corinth had major problems. But before he dealt with the problems, he said, turn your attention to the faith in this amazing God who holds you together. My friends, so it is with us. We are a real church with real problems. But we have a real hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, we are far from perfect. But by God's grace, we have the hope that we can be perfected. By God's grace, we have the hope that we are perfecting little by little, step by step. And there is no guarantee that comes from our own human strife. But there's a guarantee that comes from God's character. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And God will remain faithful to His promises ultimately to perfect His people. If only you and I today will persevere in Jesus Christ, our focus is on His great faithfulness and not our frailty. Wesley family, let's persevere in Jesus Christ. Today, some of you here, you're seated here, and you may feel that you are far away from God. And you may feel that you wrestle with issues in your family, at work, in ministry. And you wonder to yourself, God, can I make it? Can I make it? Yes, you can, my friends. On your own, you can't. But in Christ, you can. In Christ, you can. You see, my friends, Apostle Paul started with the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And he ends the letter 
with the gospel of the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15. And so chapter 1 and chapter 15, they bracket all the issues that the first Corinthian church had. All the different issues are right in the middle, but the gospel is the start and the gospel is the end. And so it is with us. You started with the gospel because you are saved and you're seated here because of what Christ has done for you. And you must persevere and allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring you to your very end. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And if you remain in Him, persevere in Him, He will bring you to the end of your race. And so my friends, let's pursue unity in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's come in humility before Christ. Let's persevere in trusting our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. For only in Him can we be faithful to the end. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we open our hearts to you. Lord, today you know our fears and our struggles. You know our pain. You know our anxiety. And we come humbly before you, Lord, and we open our hearts to receive your love, to know the hope that we have in you. Our world may be crumbling and collapsing, but Lord, you remain faithful and true. And Lord, you are with us in the valley. And Lord, you are the shepherd of our souls. Thank you, Lord. And so as we rest in you, Give us grace to pursue unity for you. Because unity delights you, O God. Unity glorifies you. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus for unity in our families, for unity between father and son, mother and son, and daughters. Father, we pray for unity in our church family, in our small groups, our ministries. I pray that we may have such a unity that even though we may not always agree with one another, Lord, we may look to you and submit to one another out of reverence for you. Help us, O Lord. We need you. Holy Spirit, come. Help us persevere in you. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Come and meet us at our points of need. And as we come to your table today, give us your means of grace to be your faithful disciples all the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.